Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Howard, and welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast. On today's episode, we're going to be talking to Dr. Linda Vogelnest, all about chronic otitis externa. Linda studied veterinary science at the University of Sydney, graduating in 1984 before working in private practice both in Australia and the UK for 10 years. She then decided to pursue her long-term interest of veterinary dermatology and became a fellow of the Australian College of Veterinary Scientists in veterinary dermatology, and this was in 2003. Linda has worked as a specialist dermatologist in Sydney for over 10 years. She also enjoys lecturing and has given many presentations to veterinary undergraduate and postgraduate students, as well as to general practitioners. Hi, Linda. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Pure Animal Podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you all about um, ears and chronic otitis externa. Have you been having a good day? Uh, Yes, hello, thank you. Um, It's been busy, another busy day. Um, Yes, I've seen lots of ears this week, although today hasn't been all about ears, so it's certainly (laughs) a week that is uh, very persistent in clinical practice as well as in referral. Yeah, absolutely. And um, given that we're recording this in summertime, I'm sure that skin and ear cases are multiplying very quickly for you at the moment with all the heat and humidity about. Yeah, (laughs) It is a busy time of year, definitely. (laughs) Um, Great. So I'm really excited to talk to you today about chronic otitis externa. I know it's a very common um, problem that you would see as a dermatologist, but also our general practitioners would experience, especially this time of year. But before we jump into that, I was just wondering um, if you're able to share with um, our guests today your your story. So how you came about to be a vet, um, you know, where that, where that interest first came from and particularly where the interest in dermatology came from and how you ended up where you are today. Sure. Yep. Um, well, um, my story, becoming a vet was something that um, I had always aspired to do. It just uh, sounds a bit cliche, but a love of animals um, was mm. certainly what drew me there. But also a love of um, working out a problem, problem-solving things um, mm-hmm. certainly fits in well with that. Yeah. So that's that's how I ended up um, heading into vet science. And then I worked in general practice for um, a number of years, over 10 years before I decided to to begin the route of specialising and, and what sparked my interest was the frustration of trying to manage sort of the skin cases in general practice and just right. wanting to understand more. And as I learnt more um, and learnt I could do things differently and more effectively, um, I kept I had a, an increased thirst for understanding more. So that's that's how I ended up down the dermatology road. Wow. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I totally get you with the whole problem solving um, part of the piece. It's certainly, mm. I think there's a lot of uh, um, type A sort of personalities in veterinary science and in, in medicine in general that have that drive to you know, to solve the problem and, and work things out step by step, which fits so perfectly with, with the career path that you've chosen, obviously. Um, and Linda, so I believe that you're currently working at the Small Animal Specialist Hospital in Sydney. Um, and how long have you been working there for? I've been working here for about eight years now. I started um, doing a little bit 
um, here and at Sydney University, but my whole clinical practice now is from from SASH mm-hmm. and. Um, yep. So it's been it's been about seven years since I've moved completely here. Okay. And on a typical day, I guess it would change by the season. But what what are the sort of cases that are walking in the door? What's the most common things that you're seeing? Yeah, by far the most common thing is is aller- underlying allergy, mm-hmm. and but then a mix. So it will be recurring infections on skin and ears. Ears certainly make up a big part of the practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's there's some that are much easier to manage than others, but we also have a spectrum of immune-mediated diseases and unusual diseases, nail diseases um, that fill in the rest of it. So, so there's certainly variety. Every owner and um, pet are different, and their their combination of of um, treatment plans that we need is quite variable. So. So even though it's similar problems that we're dealing with all the time, everyone's a little bit different. Yeah, right. And that's that's really taking that personalised approach to every case, which is so necessary. Definitely, yes. Yeah. Oh, well, that sounds really good. So I think the Small Animal Specialist Hospital are very lucky to have you by the sounds of things, um, as well as all mm-hmm. your clients and patients, of course. Um, mm-hmm. And in the world of veterinary dermatology, um, Linda, do you have any main interests which you um, really love or any sort of research interests which you've pursued over the years? Um, yes. Um, I mean, I'm interested in lots of areas, but allergies makes up a big part of what I do. And I do enjoy that individualised patient care and uh, working out what works for the owners. There's no point dictating a treatment plan if it's totally impractical or, or not you know not possible yeah. or, or not desired for the owners. So working out that combination in allergies is certainly one of my passions. Mm-hmm. Ears is another passion um, mm-hmm. because we can make those so much better and um, and so I do I, I do love dealing with the ear diseases. And then for both of those areas, um, the diagnostic testing is really important. Cytology is is essential to guide um, the beginnings of treatment at least and to monitor progress. And so cytology for a long time been one of my um, in, important interests. So I guess that's the main area. Mm-hmm. I've done little bits and pieces of research um, with, with – I haven't had a research position at Sydney University, so it's been a clinical position when I was there and but involving lots of students. So we've done little projects, understanding cytology more, looking at some treatment options more. So along those those lines in allergies and um, and cytology has been most of my research work. Yeah, no, I, I um, recall learning off you at university mm-hmm. myself. <laughs> I was one of your mm-hmm. students. Um, and certainly I found when I was in practice that Unfortunately, sometimes with the shortened amount of time you have in your consults, a lot of the time, I have to be honest, cytology was not addressed. Um, And I think that's a common problem in general practice um, as a whole. And it's so easy and so so inexpensive to do. And you can really do it on the spot. It's just about making sure that those skin consults are you know, as as long as they should be, um, 30 minutes, whether that, you know, involves a nurse doing the cytology for you and you you um, doing the staining for you and you evaluating it after, but it really needs to be done, um, like you yeah. said, and it guides everything really. Without it, you're sort of playing in the dark and just guessing. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I think we, you know, we get 
caught up in the busyness of practice um, and and into patterns of doing things and and I know we're in from my days in general practice we're comfortable admitting some things uh, to hospital when there's not a clear direction of where we need to go or we need to take some blood blood tests, run some blood tests and wait on the results to know where to go. We're happy to admit those animals. I think everyone should think about being, being if it's a busy day, you've got a case rather than just making a guest decision of admitting them to hospital. Yeah. So you do have that time to do the cytology and, and have much more guided treatment that, that way. And, and I think that helps. It gives you time to focus. Um, for those patients and and make a better plan out of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even if you were to just take the samples and the owner didn't want to admit the patient, um, at least you've taken the samples in the consult and then when the consultation period is is over and you've got a bit of time, hopefully you can take the time then. That might be a a sort of a a nice approach if someone didn't want to admit the patient. Um, But at least, yeah, at least you're doing it one way or another. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's certainly and definitely a good plan too. Yeah. Well, um, let's just jump right in. I would love to hear what your approach is and your experience is with managing um, otitis externa in particular and talking mainly about what is required for successful long-term management of these recurrent um, ear infections that are so common. I know from my experience in practice that there was a lot of frustration on the client's side um, when they treated the the ear infection and it came back two weeks later. It was (laughs) a lot of frustration for them to see that either the treatment had worked or, you know, that that the problem wasn't fixed. So obviously a lot of the time it's all about the at-home management and prevention of recurrence. Mm-hmm. So I just really love to to hear what your thoughts are on the matter. For sure. And um and it is if there's one thing I've learned with skin disease in general and you is no exception to that is that you do need to have patience and be persistent when treating ears. Um, and and that's not always easy from an owner compliance perspective as well. So, um, but but that to me is is one of the critical things is following through on them. Mm. And how I explain it to owners is it, it's generally a stepwise process that we need. Um, the first two to three weeks, and usually not longer than that, um, in many patients, is focused on clearing the initial infection. Mm-hmm. And the cytology is absolutely essential. We need to see um, what we have originally and so to guide which drops are more likely to be effective in that patient and then to see them back for a recheck, a general recheck two to three weeks later to uh, assess response to initial treatment of clearing infection. And if that's all gone according to plan, we move on to phase two. But if it's not gone according to plan, then we've either we've got something that's making it difficult. So we often will be doing an ear flush in those ones, looking yeah. for a mass lesion or a foreign body um, or just a nidus of material collected deep down in the ear that's preventing us clearing that infection well. Right. Um, one of the important things with that first part of treatment, though, not just the cytology guiding which drops to use, but clear instructions of the amount of drops to use. And here it's a little bit tricky because it becomes off-label for many of the products yes. that are registered. Um, but it, there's definite um, expert 
consensus that the amount of, of drops that goes in for uh, treatment of otitis externa is critical and that, that we need often more than what's on the label instructions. So okay. having owners measure a, um, a dose based on their weight and right. the size of the ear canal uh, to me is one of the really critical factors as well as our cytology and getting the right drop for clearing those infections um, effectively. Makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because you're not going to be using the same dose in a chihuahua's ear that you would with a Labrador. Um, exactly. Which is exactly. what a lot of the, which the all of the products don't discern between sizes. So No. Yeah. No. And you get some, some idea of when you're collecting your cytology sample of how, how big those ear canals are by waving your Cotton, cotton bud around um, gives you an idea, and that that's what I use as my indication of how how much we need. And big dogs, it'll be a mil to maybe a mil and a half per mm-hmm. dose um, in those years. That wow. would be my standard um, um, amount that, okay. that we use. And Linda, when you're taking the cytology sample, how I know sometimes these ears can be really painful. So if a dog was just not allowing you to go near the ear at all. Are you choosing to admit them and possibly do this under sedation or are you just trying to get any of the exudate that's even at the entrance to the ear canal? Um, I usually find that, that there are not many dogs where we, if we can have them held, we can get the cotton bud in there. It's actually not usually that uncomfortable for them, much more uncomfortable and much more poorly tolerated to examine them with the otoscope mm. than generally to get the cotton bud in. But yes. if it is one where it's very difficult, we will definitely sedate them and um, have have a visual examination as well as collect our cytology then at that point. Yeah. So for those ones that are particularly inflamed or painful, do you often omit the um, otoscopic exam? Yes. Yeah. And in fact, many of them, When I always do my cytology first regardless. And if there's copious discharge down in those ears, and particularly when it's bilateral, both ears involved, I don't often don't do an otoscopic exam because I don't find it gives me much useful information. If uh, it's a unilateral problem or um, if there's concern about being a foreign body or a mass down in there, then then I'm um, more likely to look up front. But mm-hmm. often I'm not actually otoscopically examining many ears until the two to three week recheck when I am hopefully have infections coming under control, a much more comfortable ear and much mm. more likely that I can get a good examination at that point too. Because you're not wanting to make it impossible for the owner to go near the ears if you're trying to force an otoscope down there in that initial consultation as well because they're, exactly. they're the ones that have to go down with, go home with the dog and, and treat it every day. Or twice yes, a day. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I just feel if you have to struggle that much, you rarely get good vision of what's yeah. down there anyhow. So it doesn't really give you much value either. Okay. So I have to ask the question, if there's not an otoscopic exam in every case, um, mm-hmm. are you always steering clear of medications or ear cleaners that can't be used with a ruptured eardrum? Yeah, that's a really good question. And the answer is, Definitely no. Um, if if I know if they have middle ear signs, signs of middle ear disease, uh, or I know they have a ruptured eardrum from previous examinations, or or vets have uh, cleaned and and um, have indicated that's the case, 
then I'm much more cautious. But otherwise, I really don't worry too much. Um, okay. And none of the drops that are commercially available are registered for use with an intact, without an intact tympanic membrane. But it's actually visually very difficult, even if you are looking down with an otoscope when you've got material down in those yeah. ears um, to know anyhow. Yeah. So I definitely... Treat for the infection, and um, I'm aware of the ototoxic potential, but there's definite ototoxic potential from the infection as well. So that's really yeah. my focus um, yep. when I'm choosing treatment. And are you using the drops on their own, or you're instructing um, clients to use a, a cleaner first, or are you just cleaning the ease out in hospital first, and then they're just using the, the medicated drops? Yeah, that's another good question and an area where there's a bit of controversy over um, what expert opinion is. Some some um, dermatologists love to clean um, very regularly before putting drops in, but I'm the complete opposite really and I don't do very much cleaning. Uh, I've found for a couple of reasons. One is that I've found that it makes it much more difficult for owners to get the medicated drops in. Dogs generally tolerate the cleaners less than they do the medicated drops and that sensation of filling up an ear and having it full of water and wanting to shake it all out that, you know, they don't like. It's not a pleasant process for a lot of them. So for that reason, we we absolutely need compliance and getting the medicated drops in for them to work. But the second reason why I don't really... um, follow a lot of cleaning is that I don't find I need to in a lot of cases and we'll get them resolving really nicely without using cleaning. Okay. And the exception might be the dogs with very heavy pinny, the Springer Spaniels, some of the Cocker Spaniels um, or very hairy ear canals like the Legottos where you've got poor ventilation in those mm. ears and I think then it is a bit of a factor just to wash out things a bit better and, and not have a, a mix in there that can allow other bacteria to proliferate. I yep. can see benefit to that. But even then, in those breeds and those cases, I'm, I probably only do ear cleaning once to twice a week yep. during the course of, of um, a medicated treatment plan. And what about once the infection has resolved for those particular dogs or for dogs that are prone to recurrence? Yeah, I, I, that's another thing that I've dropped off over time. I used to do lots of ear cleaning in a preventative role for allergic dogs trying to prevent otitis recurring and and I don't do that very much anymore or recommend that very much anymore because also I've found it to be fairly ineffective. Mm-hmm. And similarly, owners and dogs don't like it, so it's it's often dropped off over time even if they are able to do it and it is working well in the beginning. So so generally I'm using reaching for a compounded um, anti-inflammatory treatment that we'll often use once or twice a week as a low regular anti-inflammatory dose in those allergic ears and I find that far more effective than cleaning um, for the bulk of patients. Yeah. But again, the heavy pinny, dogs with heavy pinny and the hairy canals, I will often do a once a week preventative cleaner um, as part of their treatment plan, often with an anti-inflammatory drop going in regularly still if there's underlying allergy to. Going into the cleaner itself? 
No, separately. 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 Yep. So I'll do the medicated drop twice a week, once a week, mostly twice a week, and I'll do the cleaner at a separate time once a week. Okay. And this is a long-term plan, so for for ongoing without a sort of end date for these really recurrent dogs? Yes, yep. yes. So I guess uh, back, back to your original question about the plan of dealing yes, with sorry, which kind of bit sidetracked. <laughs> yeah, this is where it fits into. So step one was clearing the infection and once we've got that cleared, step two is getting the ear canals back to normal. And if it's been an acute bout, that won't take very long at all, a week or two. But if it's been a chronic recur- recurring problem, so they, they have treatment, it's better, but then a week or two later, signs are back again. There'll be lots of chronic inflammation in my yeah. ears. And and it will take daily anti-inflammatory in those ears for quite a few weeks. Uh, it's not unusual for me to have a patient um, finish their uh, initial infection treatment after two or three weeks and then have a month of daily um, anti-inflammatory drops. And we use, again, there's no commercial product that's just designed for allergic ears in Australia, so we use a compounded um dexamethasone containing mm-hmm. drop and that will continue once a day until those ears both cytologically and clinically look completely back to normal and then roll on to this prevention phase which will be like the anti-inflammatory drops once to twice a week and for some of those dogs a weekly ear cleaner as well. Okay, and, that um, makes sense. And that's the key is, is ensuring we're dealing with the underlying disease that's let the infections happen in the first place. Yes. Um, and most of the time in many of the patients, so so commonly it's atopic dermatitis that's mm-hmm. the underlying disease and so that's a difficult allergy. Um, certainly there are lots of other options that we can look into to helping manage those patients and we'll do allergen testing and allergen-specific immunotherapy or the allergy vaccine mm-hmm. to help manage their allergic signs. But I say to lots of owners, the ears are actually often the easiest part of an allergic dog to manage medically long-term with a regular um, anti-inflammatory dose once or twice a week. It's often very, very effective in, in yeah. allergic ears. Yeah, well, that makes um, sense because they're such a, a small area really compared to the rest of the skin on the dog and you exactly. can target it so easily. Um, they sort of, and it's sort such of a confined it. little yeah. space that we can yeah, get our medication there. in there well. So, yeah. yeah, it does make sense. Okay, so can you take us through um, moving away from ears if you're talking about trying to treat the underlying problem, which in your, um, which as you mentioned was most likely atopic dermatitis in a lot of these cases. Can you just quickly go over what your approach is to a long-term management of this condition, um, both from a pharmaceutical perspective and for you know other things like diet and supplementation and shampoo and things like that. You don't have to go into details because I know it's a whole other episode on its own, but just yeah. as a, a, an overview. Yeah, I mean it is a very important question, and and it and it is what I spend a lot of my day doing is yes. organizing these plans. So it does, you know, it does take a lot of time and working out what works for each patient and works for each owner. However, broadly it's it's um, recognized that what's called a multimodal treatment plan is, is the most effective and safest plan that we can have for these atopic patients. That draws on a number of areas and we, we look at 
um, allergens, so allergen testing and potentially desensitizing the immunotherapies mm-hmm. is one part. We look at skin barrier repair as an important part, increasingly important part where we know there's skin barrier defects in a lot of these atopic dogs that increases their chances of secondary infection um, and increased itch related to those. Mm-hmm. So we'll do um, fatty acid therapy and moisturizing, being careful what shampoos we use. Mm-hmm. Shampoo therapy can be a really important part of it for some patients where they definitely respond to appropriate shampooing and moisturizing and that that's a very helpful part of their plan, but it's not helpful for all patients and it's not easy for lots, some owners. So it, working out where it fits in, into each individual is important. Mm-hmm. So altogether, that's sort of part of my skincare plan is what I talk about from, from that perspective. So we've got allergen plan, skincare plan, then we have our drugs to choose from and there's what I call a safe basket of drugs where we pick the things that are more variably effective but very safe to use long-term and so that includes antihistamines, different fatty acids this time. The, the omega-6 fatty acids are all, what we use for skin barrier, mm-hmm. so linoleic acid, but then when we go on to omega-3s, um, that's the fish oil type ones are there for each side of things, so that's in our safe basket of things for for itch. Um, And then we go on to stronger medications. So that's where the big drugs are, the cortisone, which I still use, and some dogs will respond really nicely to low regular dosing of quite safe levels of of cortisone. So I don't close the door to using prednisolone, Mm -hmm. but Apical and Ucytopoint and Cyclosporin still we use um, in in patients. So there's, there's a range of of um, lots of options to choose from, which is really good, but it's trying to work out with experience and based on that individual patient care, mm-hmm. which of those are most likely to work in, in that patient and then adjusting treatment as we go, depending on their response. So much to digest, isn't it, for the there client? There is a lot yeah. to do. Mm. And how do you go about kind of ensuring that the client actually adheres to your plan? I mean, it's it could be quite overwhelming, for someone to walk well, out with it. that, and you have to, yeah, you have to be very upfront with them and get a, you know, have time to discuss that with them, and make sure that they're willing to give it a go, and make sure that they're very aware that it's, it's, you know, a, a trial and error process to work out the best plan. And some owners opt; they they don't want to go through too much trial and error. They want to try the things that are more likely to work first up. So we'll, you know, we'll bypass the safe basket of things largely and move on to the stronger drugs um, in that group. So I think having really frank conversations with the owners at the time um, is important. What's important to them? Is it the safety and do they have lots of time to be able to try things or or are they time poor and money poor and then you're in a hard place or yes. are they you know, time poor and they can afford to spend a bit more on treatment. So you're absolutely right. There's no point dictating a plan that that no one can adhere to. I would imagine that it's sort of taking a step-by-step approach as well. Maybe in the initial consult, they might start some things and then you build it up. Is that what you sort of do sometimes too? Exactly. Yeah. And if you see the client's eyes getting a bit frazzled and then, you know, they're they're starting to feel overwhelmed by, by what's going on, we go back. And, and just 
stick with a couple of things and then gradually adjust the plan over time to add more and more in. But I guess in my mind, I'm trying to work on all of those areas. Um, Allergens, if we can, um, skincare, definitely, if we can, and then, and then, bringing in the anti-inflammatory treatments. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and it's hard. It's important to keep good notes because there's so many skin cases. Everyone's dealing with so many skin cases. You need to clearly note what you've discussed, what you're starting with, what your thoughts are for next time, sort of preempting where you're going so yeah. that you, you've got a good summary of, of that patient ready to go again when they're back in for recheck. And do you generally get people to keep some sort of log or diary at home of symptoms um, so that you can track what's going on or are they usually pretty honest when they come in and and can remember everything? Yeah, that's a good question actually. Um, A lot of ours are on the allergy desensitising and and we do definitely have a log that goes with that and as part of that we record what medications they're on. Um, I guess we don't actively otherwise put that in place but it is a good point to think about. We, we do have follow-up calls and we try and um, touch bases at the point where I can assess what that response to treatment was. So so we usually, you know, if we put them on three weeks of whatever, it's good to touch bases and make a note on the file at that point, okay, this worked. Memory is very poor in yes. my, my experience with everyone's busy lives and, and time's going on and lo- using lots of things. So relying on memory is not good. And I think having some sort of log from the start um, is a sensible thing to do. Yeah, making it as easy as possible, hey, for the for the, for the poor owner. <laughs> that's yep. one of these yep. dogs. Um, well, I know that we're nearly out of time, Linda, but just something that's of interest to me, um, in terms of uh, nutrition for these cases, I'm talking about atopic dermatitis in general, um, and obviously this fits with with ears as well. Um, is do you do you change anything to do with their diet, or is do you feel like diet's quite important um, for managing these cases long term? Yeah, that's also a very good question, and <laughs> I don't don't really know the answer to that. And I wish I knew a little bit more about how relevant all the the diets are to atopic dogs. We certainly go through an elimination diet process in a lot of our topic dogs if they're non-seasonal to get to our diagnosis in the first place. Mm-hmm. And um, some of them have concurrent food allergy and atopic dermatitis. So clearly it's important in those ones to restrict their diet to to avoid ingredients that, that flare their atopic dermatitis too. There's also been some work suggesting that... Um, even though they're not truly food allergic, that some atopic patients are worse on certain foods and mm. it can act as, as a, a, not an allergen, but a flare factor for the atopic dermatitis. So, yeah. um, and there are suggestions that some diets higher in fatty acids might be helpful and that's our sensitive skin range of, of, um, of foods. And maybe they are. There's just no good evidence to to know one way or the other whether they truly help us. So um, generally my advice to owners is to have a good balanced diet. We avoid um, colorings and flavorings and, and try and have it a, a more natural ingredients and avoid preservatives if possible, which yeah. can all potentially be flare factors. Yeah. Um, and then if we're supplementing already with fatty acids, then I'm not too worried about having extra in the diet. 
But if we're not supplementing with fatty acids, then one of the ones that's the sensitive skins can be gorged. But yeah. yeah, other than that, I don't have any good evidence base to mm. to direct what diets they should be on. Yeah. There's certainly a great fad at the moment. So many different diets, which is lovely. It's nice to have choices, but the fad is for the grain-free, grain-free. diets, and yeah. there's absolutely no evidence that there's any problem with grain. And it's a very rare cause of um, food allergy, documented causes food allergy in dogs anyhow. So it's yeah. just come from the human world and with absolutely no evidence base to, right. to, um, to, to bring it on. And everyone now comes in on a grain-free yes. diet and says, can't be food because we've already <laughs> excluded grain. So. And most of the time yeah. with the diet, it's the protein component that they're allergic exactly. to, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So, and in oh, fact, they've started to see some problems potentially with the grain-free diets too as far as nutritional yes. balance. So, yes, So, um, yeah, it's a complicated world there and as yet we don't have all the answers. But trying to have a good base, sensible food um, and some variety of, of um, you know, other ingredients I think is is generally a good thing if they're not seemingly reactive to any food. Well, that sounds like a very uh, comprehensive plan that you're you're sending your your clients home with, um, and one that I'm sure leads to a lot of su- a lot of success by the sounds of it. So, and it's really it's really um it really simplifies it when you sort of lay it out in that stepwise fashion. So, thank you so much, Linda, for sharing that with us. I know that you probably need to go back to your busy day, um, so we'll wrap up. But just before we go, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing with our listeners where they can find you and where they can find more information about. Um, Sash in particular, just the the website or contact details would be great. For sure. Um, So through the Sash Small Animal Specialist Hospital at North Ride and there is a website where it has um, uh, information about all the different services including dermatology. So there's extra information on there and the contact numbers and things are on there. Um, And they can sign in, um, they can email in through info at sashvet.com and we're always happy to um, answer any questions and help as much as we can. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, I've really enjoyed our time together today, Linda. I'm really grateful that you've given up part of your busy Friday. I know that they can go a little bit crazy in veterinary practice Mm. from my memory. Mm. Um, And I've really learnt a lot today. I just was wondering if you're able to leave our listeners with a final pearl of wisdom on managing chronic ear cases. Yep, the important things for me with ears are the cytology initially to guide what's mm-hmm. going, make sure your doses are right, be persistent until those ears are back to normal and then have a prevention plan for whatever started all in the first place. And, and that, the four steps in there which should get you success in the vast majority of years where you have happy, happy dogs, happy owners and, and yeah. stable ears. Very wise words. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right, Linda. Well, hopefully we'll get you back one day um, and I'll say goodbye now. Okay. Thank you, then. This is the Pure Animal Podcast and I'm Dr. Sarah Howard. <laughs>